Welcome to the Medusa's Mike podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honored to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. Hello, it's Lucretia here. Welcome back to Medusa's Mike, and it is episode 12. Can you believe it? This season has gone by so quickly, and if you've been with me for the whole journey, I'm really hoping that you have learned a lot about how you can help to stop sexual violence in your community. I certainly have learned a lot lot along the way, and today what I'd like to do is to share 12 things that you can do to stop sexual violence. And these 12 things are drawn from the amazing interviews that I've been able to do this season with some incredibly wise and knowledgeable guests and also some things that I've learned along the way as well just from working in this space and learning more about it every day because, as I've said before, I do not claim to be an expert in how to prevent or respond to sexual violence or domestic violence or family violence. I'm here to learn just like you and share what I learned along the way. So today's episode, 12 ways that you can stop sexual violence in your community. Now, some of these 12 are practical, specific steps, and some of them are insights that will help to inform your decision-making when you're confronted with particular situations. So let's get going. The first one I wanted to share with you really came out strongly in my first interview that I did this season with the pretty impressive Erin Cash. Now, Erin Cash, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I really recommend you go back and do it. I actually went across two episodes because we talked about so many amazing things. So it was episodes one and two. Now, Erin is a former police officer who spent a lot of time investigating child abuse and sexual assault cases while she was an officer. And she also spent quite a bit of time with Task Force Argos, which is the specialised unit in the Queensland Police that focus on online predators, pedophiles. Now, I was really excited to have Erin on the show because she was also my first collaborator for the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, which is an enterprise that I established last year. And together we developed the Sexual Assault Response Guide, which basically if you save it to your phone, I really want to encourage you to go to the website and grab it or go to the SSV CoLab socials and grab it and save it to your phone. It basically tells you the steps to follow if you experience a sexual assault, because we all know 
that most sexual assaults are not immediately reported. They're not. And then even the ones that are reported, only about 10% of them ever get reported at all. So this sexual assault response guide, it's a one-pager, it's a flowchart, it's really simple to follow, and it just helps to make sure that if you are a victim or you are supporting someone who is a victim of sexual assault, that certain steps are followed to make sure they receive support and also that they can collect the evidence of the sexual assault in case they want to pursue charges later you know, make a complaint later to police, go up and tell this story, etc. So Erin, my first interviewee, amazing. Now, these days, Erin spends a lot of time in high schools teaching personal protection to teenage girls. And there were a couple of things that really came out of her interview for me that I want to share with you. Number one, this is the first way that you can help stop sexual violence. It is this, be aware that it does not look like we are shown in the films. It doesn't look like we are shown in Hollywood. It's unlikely to be a stranger. Instead, it is going to probably be someone that you know, someone that the victim knows. It could be, you know, someone that they're dating, someone they have dated. It could be someone they meet in a bar. It could be someone they work with. But generally, it is likely to be someone that you know. It's not likely to be a stranger. And just knowing this helps us to really understand a little bit more about what these types of crimes look like. Because what we see in Hollywood is it's this stranger hiding in the dark. And yes, sometimes it is but it is more likely to be someone that you know or someone that the victim knows. So I think it's important that we understand that as a society and then that can then frame how we approach the conversations about sexual violence. So that's number one. It doesn't look like it does in the Hollywood films. Sexual violence is more likely to be perpetrated against you by somebody that you know in some way. Number one. Number two. Now, number two relates specifically to this work that Erin does in high schools. And she shared with me that at the end of every session, every session she does, she will have young women come up to her and share their stories of experiencing sexual assault. Every session this happens. Now, that should give you an idea about just how prolific this issue is. Like it's, this is not, when it comes to sexual violence and sexual assault, these are not things that don't happen to a lot of people. It happens to a lot of people and it specifically happens to a lot of women. And this is what is carried out time and time again when they approach Erin after her sessions and they and they share their stories because they feel safe to do that. You know, they feel like they're in a safe space and they can feel supported and get some really good advice. Now, the point I want to make here is that there is one story that Erin hears repeatedly from these girls who are sharing their stories with her, and that is that often they have experienced sexual assault and they have known the perpetrator, and the perpetrator is the son 
of family friends. So these girls, her family will regularly socialise with another family and that family has a teenage son. And that teenage son has coerced this young woman into a sexual act or many sexual acts. And then afterwards he has called her a whore, said that she was the slut and that if she told anybody, they would say that she was the one to blame in a nutshell. Now, these girls are terrified. First of all, they feel shame, which isn't theirs to hold, okay? Like if you experience, if you are someone who has experienced sexual assault, please understand it is not your fault. It was never your fault. Never, ever, ever your fault. It is always the fault of the perpetrator, always. And anything else is a lie. These teenage boys are saying to these girls, well, you're the slut, you're the whore, it's your fault. And if you say anything, no one will believe you. So obviously this connects to point one, that it's more likely to be someone you know versus a stranger. And second of all, what really came up for me is that We really need to be having really honest conversations with our young girls about what sexual assault might look like in the real world. And you can see how these two things kind of work together, right? Because if we have conversations with our daughters, our nieces, you know, the young women that we are around and we say to them, look, there are going to be men out there who respect you men and boys, and they are going to be men and boys out there who disrespect you. Here's some of the ways to tell the difference. And we have a really honest conversation about the fact that no one, nobody ever, ever has the right to coerce you, guilt you, manipulate you, get you drunk, get you high, whatever, in order to get you to perform a sexual act with them. Nobody has that right. And if it does happen, then I want you to come and tell me because I'll believe you because it's not okay and it will never be okay. And so I really wonder if that's something that we can be doing. If you are a parent, I'm not a parent, but if you are a parent, I really feel that we it's so important that we have these really honest conversations with young people about what it really looks like so that they actually find, when they find themselves in that scenario, they actually have this understanding drop in, oh, hang on, I've walked this through with someone and I, I understand that this is actually what's happening and that I am being coerced and I am being sexually assaulted because sometimes you don't realise that until later on, you know. So I guess that's the second thing is that if you are a, a parent or somebody who has guardianship over a young woman, I think it's really important to have that really honest conversation about what sexual assault might look like in the real world. And equally, I think it's really important for parents, particularly fathers, particularly fathers, if you have a son or a young man you have guardianship over, I think it's really important that the conversation is had that, you know what? I'm never going to be okay if I 
hear that you have done X, Y, and Z. It is never okay for you to coerce a woman or go into sex, guilt her, get her drunk to get her into bed, you know, manipulate her to give you a head job or a hand job or whatever. And I'm just letting you know that that's never okay. And if you do those things, you're actually committing a crime, people. Like this is criminal acts. If you sexually assault someone, you are a criminal. Let's call it for what it is, okay? You're a criminal. And I just feel it's really important that particularly the male role models in young men's lives, that these male role models make it really clear that, hey, this is not okay behaviour. This is not behaviour that I'm ever going to be okay with. And if I find out that you are doing this kind of behaviour, not that I think you will, but you know, this is this is not okay with me and there are going to be repercussions if you do this because it's a crime and I need you to understand that and I need you to be, I want you to know that this is, those kinds of acts are not what makes a good man. So that's, I guess that's the second thing I want to say is that if you have guardianship or you are a parent of a young person, whether they be male, female or non-binary, that you have those direct conversations so that they are prepared, particularly our young women, because these stories happen over and over and over and over again. And it has been like that for a very, very long time. And if we're going to break the back of this horrendous pattern, I don't think we can tiptoe around the subject matter And certainly I have to say that when I have conversations with young people, particularly young women in their late teens and their 20s, I have these conversations with them and suddenly there's all this stuff that comes out of them about their experiences. And so sometimes it's just about creating the space for that to happen so that they know that they're safe, they will be heard, they will be supported, and that you will be really clear with them about the reality that we deal with. Because this is reality. We can't pretend these things aren't happening, right? As much as we would prefer that they don't happen, they are happening. So let's have some direct conversations so that our young people are more informed and more empowered. So that's number two. I think you could call it let's have direct conversations with young people. The third one comes from the interview I did with Tracy Lee Allen. Now, you can hear my interview with her over episodes three and four. And Tracy Lee Allen has also done a lot of work with police, but she wasn't a sworn officer. And her particular area of expertise is around domestic violence and family violence. And these days, she works with businesses and organizations to develop domestic violence policy and deliver training to their staff. Now, I learned some really interesting things during my conversation with Tracy. And one of them was that abusers these days will try to compromise the employment of their partners. So I know that we've had this, once again, the Hollywood narrative of the bruised woman with the black eye, the, you know, the swollen lip. But once again, domestic violence doesn't always look like that. And what Tracy really shone a light on strongly for me is that these abusers will try to compromise their partner's employment by, for example, making sure that their uniform is always dirty at the last minute. 
hiding their partner's car keys so they're going to be late for work, making anonymous online complaints to the company about their partner. And all these things can ultimately lead to that victim facing potentially disciplinary action or worst case scenario, losing their job, which then of course puts them even more in the power of the person abusing them. Now, what I found, I mean, obviously I found that really interesting because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before. And as part of that, I know that I had a a subsequent conversation with a manager that I know, and they have a, you know, a number of staff and they listened to that podcast. And I was like, they learned something from that as well. And they really took away the fact that it could look different and this is what it might look like. And for me, when they shared that they'd listened in and they took that information away with them, like for me, I'm just like, wow, that is awesome because that means I'm doing what I really want to do, right, which is to help people to feel empowered. So if you're a manager and you're hearing this and you're like, okay, next month, next year, five years from now, you have a team member who's not performing properly or he's always late, or whatever the performance issue is, they're getting a lot of online complaints, you might now feel more empowered to stop and go, hang on, maybe it's not that this employee is just rubbish at their job. Maybe there's something more going on behind the scenes. Because also being aware that victims of domestic and family violence aren't going to just immediately disclose to you, even if they're going through disciplinary action at work, they may still not tell you. So I thought that was a really good thing to take away, a really good insight that domestic violence is not always going to look like you think it will and that abusers will compromise, will seek to compromise their partner's employment. So that's number three. Now, also as part of that, what came through to me from that conversation with Tracy is that we can provide more support for employees who are experiencing domestic violence within the workplace, and it doesn't need to be a really onerous thing. There are simple changes you can do in your workplace to help that person be more supported. So, for example, if they have disclosed that they are experiencing domestic violence, they might have a DVO against that perpetrator, but The perpetrator might be, for example, trying to find out when that person is arriving or leaving work because they might be wanting to lie in wait for them, for example, right, when they're arriving or when they're leaving. Now, an example that Tracy gave is that often in workplaces, if you ring reception and you say, I want to speak to, I don't know, I want to speak to Janice, and the receptionist will say, oh, no, she's not here at the moment, and can take a message and then the caller might say, oh, well, look, I want to try and catch her at whatever. Do you know what time she'll be back? Now, at this point, a good receptionist would often say, look, I think she's back around two o'clock. And then the caller would say, okay, that's great. Thanks so much. I hang up the phone. The problem is when the receptionist gives that information out about when that person is expected back at the office, The perpetrator now has that information and can literally sit outside the office and know that person is going to be back around that time and they can lie and wait for them. And so Tracy's comment was, you know, don't give out that information through reception. Don't give out those kinds of specifics. And 
it's such a small thing, right? But that helps to create more safety for the victim just by making that one change in how things are done in your business. So I think that's number four. Small changes in your business can help to provide a lot more safety for domestic violence victims. And it doesn't need to be onerous for how your business runs. It doesn't need to have really heavy impacts. They can be small changes that make a huge difference. So that was the fourth takeaway. The fourth way that we can stop sexual violence and domestic violence is by approaching things a little bit differently in our workplaces. Now, number five deals with the conversation that I had with Dr. Michael Flood. Now, Michael is an internationally renowned researcher in preventing sexual violence and has a specific focus on stopping young men from perpetrating sexual violence. And Michael is very knowledgeable. And the really cool thing about Michael and his work is he doesn't pull any punches. And if you are on LinkedIn, I recommend you go and follow him because he's always posting really great material about how people can be part of the solution and stopping sexual violence. And he really does call out some of the BS stories that society tells about men. And he's really on the front foot when it comes to saying, you know, men have got to be accountable for their actions. You know, they are responsible and they need to take action. And so obviously when he agreed to come on the podcast, I was like, This is really awesome. I want to hear from a man's perspective about these issues because there are still so few men who are out there publicly doing any advocacy about this issue. Now, Michael provided a lot of tips about how people can be part of the solution, how men particularly can help to stop sexual violence. But when I asked him what is one thing that he felt he could say to people, to everyday people, particularly men and boys, about how they could stop sexual violence. His comment to me was, um, start in your own backyard. So that's number five, isn't it? Start in your own backyard. Look at how you interact with the people you are in relationship with. Look at your own behaviour in those dynamics. Do the self-reflection. And I guess as part of that, for me, it's, you know, notice if people you are in relationship with, and they could be work colleagues, socially friends, family, you know, neighbours, whatever, someone you're in a club with, notice how these people behave too. You know, are they sexist? Are you saying when they make a sexist remark, you know, mate, you know, that's not okay. We don't do that. We don't do that anymore. Just really takes a really good discerning look at your own dynamics and how you move through the world and make changes accordingly. And I think that's really good advice because I'm a firm believer that when we change, the world changes around us. It's like there's this ripple effect. So that is number five, start with your own backyard. What is your behavior doing? Like what are you doing in your relationship to other people? And what are you going to change so you can be part of the solution and the part of the transition to a much more equal and non-sexist and non-misogynistic community? That's number five. Now, number six, 
Number six comes from the conversation I had with Simone O'Brien. Simone O'Brien is the victim survivor of an absolutely horrific, horrific domestic violence attack, which basically involved her partner, who she'd just broken up with, beating her with a baseball bat. And she still has long-term health impacts from that. And that happened about 10 years ago. So I was really honoured that Simone felt safe enough to come onto the podcast and to share her story and to share what she's learned from the experience. And she now travels all over the place and shares her story and has also started doing some work with perpetrators to try and get them to see their role in their behaviour and how they need to change things. But I guess number six specifically from Simone's conversation with me was that we need to listen to our intuition. And look, if you know anything about the other work that I do, which is around mentoring and self-trust, I am all about the intuition. And Simone and I talked a little bit about that, actually, about how we're in relationships. We have been taught to not listen to our intuition and to like reason our way through things when really, when our intuition is saying, "Mm, this doesn't feel quite right, something's a bit off here, we really need to listen to that message that comes from within us. We need to listen to that. But we have been conditioned, women have been conditioned to ignore their intuition And unfortunately, sometimes what that means is that we then find ourselves in situations where our intuition is saying, warning, like this is a bit off, something's not quite right. But then our mind steps in and kind of talks over it, you know, or our heart steps in and goes, oh, but I really, I love this person and I really care about this person and so on. So this point I want to make really strongly here, and I think I actually do believe this applies to all parts of our lives, not just when it comes to our intimate relationships. And it's this, we need, women in particular, need to listen to their intuition, pay attention and act accordingly when it comes to our relationships. Our intuition can help to keep us safe. Our intuition will tell us when things are not quite right. So be aware when your intuition is trying to tell you something and notice if your mind or your heart steps in to try and, you know, paper over things. Because I don't know about you, but when I have ignored my intuition, you know, talked myself out of what I was feeling to be true, when I have done that, sure enough, a week later, a day later, a year later, something will happen and I'll go, you know what, I felt like something wasn't right at the time but I didn't listen to my intuition. So number six, listen to your intuition. And as part of that, pay attention to the red flags that your intuition is showing you. When something happens, pay attention and respond accordingly. Trust yourself. And if you are in a relationship and your gut instinct, your intuition is saying, "Mm, this is not right, this doesn't feel right, get support. Find someone to talk to and find a safe way to extricate yourself from that situation. Because we do also know that the most dangerous time for women to leave a domestic violence situation or anyone to leave a DV situation is right at that time of leaving. 
that's like a really high risk moment. And so it's really important that that it's handled in a way that is as safe as possible for you. So number six, listen to your intuition, pay attention, get support, act accordingly. And number seven is something that Simone brought up really strongly. After she had gone to court, so she'd recovered enough, she'd taken the perpetrator to court and he's now in jail, thank goodness, where he belongs. What she discovered after the fact is that he had actually had a couple of previous partners and had actually really abused them quite severely as well. And Simone's comments were that if those other victims had reported, then Simone wouldn't have ended up in the situation she now finds herself in, where she was beaten really badly, has long-term health impacts. Now, I'm going to put a caveat around this and say that I absolutely understand why people do not report. I absolutely get it. We have a lot of good reasons for not reporting when we are sexually assaulted or experience a domestic violence assault or family violence, okay? Particularly women, we have very good reasons. But Simone's point, I think, is also really valid because as long as we don't report, these perpetrators continue to get away with it. And in her situation, it had happened a couple of times before And the perpetrator got to her and she suffered some really horrific consequences. So I think it's just definitely worth sitting with that fact that if it happens to you and you don't report, that's your choice. It's your body. We all know the reporting process is not easy. There's no guarantees you will get justice at the end of it, but there can often be really even more negative repercussions, you know, for you if you make a complaint. But if we don't report and these perpetrators are not held accountable for their actions, they will go and do it again. They won't stop. And I think this is a really difficult reality that we need to sit with. And, yes, obviously we need to make sure that our support systems with the police and with the courts and, and, you know, government legislation, all that sort of thing, we need to make sure that those supports are well in place so that people can report safely and feel confident they will be heard and believed and that justice will be served for them. Of course, we have a lot of work to do in that space and there are people who are working really hard to get changes, to get the changes that we need. But when we don't report, perpetrators do it again. And in Simone's case, it was worse. In Simone's case, she paid a really awful price. So it's a a tricky thing. We need to report because if we don't, perpetrators will do it again. They will keep going and it may well be much worse for the next person, for the next victim. So that was number seven. Number eight, number eight came out of my conversation with Morgana Pryor. Now, it's really interesting to me how 
our careers will take somewhat random trajectories. I knew Morgana well over a decade ago when we both worked for a government department in Brisbane. But these days she works for a large superannuation fund in Papua New Guinea, which is a really interesting place to find yourself. Having spent basically all of her time, I think, you know, working in Brisbane a couple of years ago, she saw an opportunity to work in Papua New Guinea and she took it. When I talked to Morgana, we spoke about the role that corporations are playing in helping to support people who are experiencing domestic violence in Papua New Guinea. And I have to say, that conversation just blew my mind. It honestly just blew my mind because I'm currently in Australia and we do have organisations that, you know, have domestic violence training and all that sort of stuff. But in Australia, because we have other infrastructure like support services and and police and, you know, a health system that's really geared up to provide support for people who are experiencing domestic violence, what happens is that as soon as an employee leaves the workplace, that's really pretty much where the business interaction with them ends. You know, as they exit the workplace, it then becomes the responsibility of the police or the health systems or the support systems, right? But in Papua New Guinea, the corporations have taken a very different approach because the infrastructure that we have the luxury of here in Australia, they don't have there. And domestic violence is so prevalent that basically the corporations got together and thought, we need to do something about that. Now, statistically, there was a study done in PNG a couple of years ago, and from memory, I think it was that in a 12-month period across three major organisations, about 68% of people had experienced domestic violence, 68% of the employees. Now, that is an absolutely horrific number. I think we can all agree about that. And Obviously, what the corporations realised is that domestic violence is not just about, I mean, the obvious is wanting your staff to be safe, but then there are other repercussions. If you have a staff member experiencing domestic violence, they may also be absent a lot. When they are at work, their productivity will be down because, you know, when you are experiencing trauma, you are not going to be able to operate at your best in a workplace. And also as part of that, you know, if you're making, for example, high-risk decisions in the workplace, your ability to make sound decisions if you are experiencing significant trauma is also compromised. And so what happened was these corporations got together in PNG and went, okay, right, we're going to do something about that. They set up an organization where they could, where support services could be managed and delivered from. They developed training and policies and rolled them out through all these organizations in PNG. So basically, corporations got together and said, well, we're not going to wait for other organizations to provide support. We're going to do it. We're going to fund it. We're going to be proactive. And I have to say, and you can hear it even in my voice, hearing Morgana talk about what the corporations are doing up there, I was just like, what the heck are we doing here? You know, like it just makes what we are doing here and I suspect in other countries, you know, more westernised countries, it just really highlights 
how much more corporations and businesses could be doing, you know, because there's a lot more you can do. And the corporations have done it in PNG because there has been no one else to provide it. So they've stepped in. So I think that what came up for me for that is that corporates can do more. I think we could say that's number eight. Corporates, businesses, organizations, departments can do a lot more to support victims of domestic violence. And it's really just about asking ourselves, well, what else can we do? What else can we do? And one example that Morgana was talking about was that one of the organizations had set up a survivor group. And that survivor group met regularly in that organization over lunch. The group of women would come together, they'd sit down and they'd talk. And there would be a couple of members of that survivor group were actually from leadership in that organization. And they had experienced and survived domestic violence. And just by them showing up, they were also showing the other women in that group how it was possible to move through those experiences and come out in a different place. A survivor group. How powerful is that? And how much does that kind of initiative show your staff that you are fully invested in being part of the solution, that you are fully invested in making sure they are supported? I just was blown away. Look, and that's just one example of the things that they're doing up there. And if you, you know, I honestly suggest that if you want to know more about the role that business can play in supporting people who are experiencing domestic violence and improving their productivity and making sure they're safe and, and all those things, then I definitely recommend you check out the episodes where I talk to Morgana. And I guess that brings me to number nine is that, and this came through really strongly as well, is that they had implemented all this extensive training and policies that were victim-focused in these organisations. And so when Morgana had a staff member come to her who disclosed they were experiencing domestic violence, she had a policy to refer to. And that policy was very victim-focused in what it specified her response needed to be. So I think that's really important. We need to keep coming back to, okay, what is the best thing for the victim in this scenario and how can we best support them? And from the sounds of it, that policy had a bit of flexibility in there because, of course, every situation is different. And so management would, you know, hear of this situation and then they'd have to make decisions about, okay, what's the best way to support this particular individual to ensure they are safe? So I was... You know, I think that if you don't have a domestic violence policy in your business or your organization or your department right now, I think this is a really good opportunity to look at getting one and to make sure you get the training that goes with that. And yeah, get a policy. I think that's, you know, make sure it's victim focused. So that is number nine, the top things that you can do to stop sexual violence and domestic violence. Number 10. All right. Number 10 deals with the Depp versus Heard trial in the United States. And unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of months, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. 
You may have also, unfortunately, witnessed some of the absolute rampant misogyny that has gone with that trial. Now, this is not a conversation for me about whether or not John Depp is the abuser or whether Amber Heard is. That's not what this conversation is for me, although I do have my personal feelings about that and opinions. But what I saw as that unfolded was an absolutely disgusting display of rampant misogyny across our social media channels and absolute double standards applied to John Depp's behaviour versus Amber Heard's behaviour. I mean, for goodness sake, that woman was in court. Every single thing she did, everything she wore, every facial expression she had was completely critiqued and all like, oh, that's abuse, you know, that's evidence that she's abusive, right? And that same critique was never applied to John Depp's behaviour. And to me, I was just like, I feel like, or rather I hope that people don't know that they're applying such unconscious bias in this situation because there has just been, there were memes making fun of Amber Heard on social media and I was just like, why aren't people doing that to John Depp? Why don't we ever do that to men who are abused of sexual assault or domestic violence? Never seems to really happen. It's when women are. And so many of the narratives that came out during that time were just so overtly misogynistic. And I just hope that people aren't doing it deliberately, although I suspect many are. But I digress because we want to come back to number 10, which is part of it, is that I think we need to be really aware that we all have unconscious bias. And in, the, in that particular case, there was so much of that filtering through every conversation about that case. And I don't believe, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware that they are applying it. A lot of people aren't aware yet that they are applying different standards and expectations and beliefs regarding a woman's behavior versus a man's behavior. And so if you know you know about that particular case, I want to encourage you to maybe have a think about that and reflect on if you were someone who was watching some of that televised case on you know your screens and you were like saying, oh, yeah, no, she's wearing that because and that means that or she's doing this, that facial expression means that. Ask yourself, were you applying the same standards to John Depp's behaviour? For example, when he was, you know, arriving at the courtroom and just waving cheerfully at his fans who were calling out his name, did you ever think to yourself, well, that's evidence that he just thinks this is a big joke and he's doing it for press and he's doing it to torment his victim again? Did anyone think that? And if Amber Heard had done the same thing. If Amber Heard had arrived at a court and just waved cheerfully at people and laughed and joked, what would you have said about her behaviour then? Just to ask yourselves these questions. Like I think it's really important, right? We need to be aware that we all have unconscious bias and when it comes to things, misogyny and the patriarchy, which is everywhere, which we are all impacted by, 
we need to do some brutal, critical self-reflection on our own behaviours and beliefs. I have unconscious bias. You have unconscious bias. It is up to us as individuals to look at those things, unpack them, so we can actually move forward in a healthier way for everybody. So that's number 10. We need to be aware that we all have unconscious bias and unconscious bias when it comes to the matters of sexual violence, domestic violence, family violence is a result of growing up in patriarchal social dynamics. And sometimes you may not even be aware that you have this unconscious bias running. So that's number 10. Now, number 11 also came out of that case, but it was something that had come up for me previously as well. And that was there was a lot of comments about how Amber Heard had recorded John Depp in particular situations. And people came out and said, oh, well, that's just manipulative and she's just trying to trick him and, and all those kinds of stories, right? And there was just often I saw this like general feeling that her recording him was evidence that she was manipulative and all these things. But I've had conversations with women who have had abusive partners who have recorded their partners at particular times. And the reason they've done this, I literally had a conversation with a woman a few months ago where she had recorded her partner when they were having, you know, something was coming up, this big argument, it's now her former partner, and she recorded it. And the reason she recorded it was because after the fact, he would deny he had ever said anything. He would deny he had said certain things. And like I said, that's not the first conversation I've had like that. And so I think it's really important we understand that when a victim records their partner, they're doing that because A, their partner, if the partner is abusive, their partner will just deny it ever happened later. I never said that. I never did that. And that's why the victim will record it because then they have the evidence. And that evidence, I think it's probably firstly for themselves because when you're with a partner who is gaslighting you, which is making you doubt your sanity, making you doubt that things really did happen when they did happen, that's what gaslighters do. They kind of gnaw away at your, you know, your understanding of yourself and your sanity. If you're with a gaslighter and you are starting to really doubt yourself because something happens and then later on they go, oh, that didn't happen, you will record them. And I think the first reason you're doing that is to prove it to yourself that actually did happen, to prove to yourself that you're not going mad. And the second reason is that you can show it or let someone else hear it so people outside of that relationship will believe you because this is the other part, right, is that these kinds of abusers like gaslighting abusers will often appear very charming or very benign to everyone else. And so when someone comes forward and says, well, they're abusing me, people go, well, I've never seen that part of that person. I've never seen that part of him. You know, I'm sure you're making too much of it or whatever. And that's why the recording happens. So something to be aware of, number 11, victims who are in relationships where they are being gaslighted. So if you have a gaslighting abuser, 
He's trying to get you to doubt yourself and your sanity. Often victims will record what has happened to prove it to themselves that it did happen and secondly, to prove it to others. This is not uncommon behaviour. Does not prove when you're recording someone in that way, it does not mean that you're manipulative. It probably just means that you are just trying to hold on to your sanity. So that's number 11. And number 12 was something that I learned about. This was new to me and I guess it was just so so many times when I have these conversations and I'll talk to someone who's experienced a particular area of domestic violence or family violence or sexual violence, prevention or response, they'll say something to me and I'll go, I didn't know that, but, yeah, of course, which I find really interesting because when you start to apply your logic, yeah, of course that makes sense. It's just that you need someone to shine a light on it, right? And so this is number 12, and that is that abusers will often try to continue their abuse of their victims post-separation, and they will do that via the court system. So they will find reasons to take their victim back into the courtroom over and over and over again as a way to exert control in that dynamic. So this is a form, obviously, of vexatious litigation, and that's number 12. Abusers may sometimes repeatedly find ways to take their victim back into court to maintain control, to continue traumatising their victims. Vexatious litigation. Now, whether or not you believe that was happening in the Depp versus Heard case is a matter for you, but certainly the suggestions of abuse were proven to be true in the UK High Court, which was a matter that Depp initiated, okay? He initiated that taking them to court, taking Amber Heard to court and the son, I think it was, newspaper. And then he lost that case. He wanted to appeal and the court there was saying no. The Court of Appeal was like, there's no evidence to support an appeal here. There's no evidence to suggest that the judge who heard that matter was unduly influenced. And then what happened? So that was in the UK. Fast forward, Depp finds another jurisdiction in the United States this time where he is more likely to win the matter and also re-traumatise his victim potentially. If you believe that's what he was doing, I'm not in his head, I don't know, but you could make that argument. And obviously then he's broadcasting it across social media as well. He wasn't, but because they had the open court. So, you know, is this a case of vexatious litigation? I don't know. It could be an argument for that. But regardless, it is important to know that this is something that abusers will do to try to maintain the connection and control over their victims. They will take them back to court over and over and over again as you know so that was really interesting when I learned that something for you to know too so that's number 12 (laughs) I feel like this episode has been a long one I hope that those 12 things have been helpful in empowering you to feel like you know more about sexual domestic and family violence and you know more about how you can be part of the solution in stopping it in your street your community your town, your city, your state, your country. 
because that is the purpose of this podcast. I want to empower you with those tools and that information because we are all responsible. We're all part of the ecosystem in which this type of violence functions and we can all play a role in stopping it. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know. I do want to finish off today's episode by saying a very sincere thank you to two particular groups of people. The first group of people is all of the amazing guests who have taken their time, given their time, to sit down with me and share their knowledge and insights about their areas of expertise so that I could then share them with you. The guests I've had in this season on this podcast have just been so generous and I couldn't have done this without them. I have learned so much from them and I'm hopeful. Well, in fact, I'm quite sure that you have learned a lot as well. So thank you sincerely to all of my guests. And the second group of people I really want to thank are, of course, all of you. If you have tuned into this podcast, I'm so grateful that you stopped by because also you've taken time out of your day to listen in. And I really hope that you feel more empowered from doing so. And I want you to know how grateful I am that you have come and spent a bit of time with me. I also want to let you know that this is the end of season one, but there is going to be a season two because I am very committed to stopping sexual violence. This is not a flash in the pan thing for me. It's something I believe in very strongly and I want to be part of the solution, right? I know I talk about the solution a lot, but I guess it's the solution is not just one thing and it's not just one person. It's multiple, many, many, many people. It's all of us and it's multi-layered and it needs to happen in all levels of society. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or what cultural background you have, what gender you are. We are all in this together and we all can make a difference together. So that's what I feel really passionate about, this whole idea of collaborating to create change. So I'm going to sign off now and I just want to leave you with two more things. The first thing is if you have felt that you have gained something by listening to this podcast, please like it and share it with a friend, leave me a review. I would just love that. That helps me to get more people listening and to get more of this information out there into the world. And the second thing is that if you are somebody who is doing something to stop sexual violence, domestic violence, family violence in your community, if you know of somebody and you think, oh, they would be great to come on and share some practical insights on the Medusa's Mike podcast, please send them my way. I'd love to talk to them. I am taking a break. We're going to have a little interlude between season one and season two, but I will be doing interviewing during that period. So uh, yeah, definitely please send them my way. One other thing I wanted to mention is I've had some amazing people in the background who have really supported me to pull this podcast together. In particular, my two editors, Sophia and Ellie, thank you. I couldn't have brought this to life without you. And I also want to thank all of the people in my life who have supported me in 
making this a reality and who are continuing to cheer me on from the sidelines and who keep believing in me. I'm really grateful for that. So thank you all for your company. I look forward to talking to you again in season two. And in the meantime, please keep taking action to stop sexual violence. Everything you do is absolutely making a difference. And if we continue to work together, we can stop it. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for your company today. If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's Mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our express personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.